Paul says, I now rejoice, Colossians 1.25, I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh in behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I became a servant, according to God's stewardship, which was given to me for you to accomplish the word of God, the mystery which was hidden from the ages and from the generations, but now revealed to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul has been explaining his service to the gospel, how that he became a servant of or unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you remember that he explained as being the first thing that was involved in his being a servant of the gospel was that he suffered He suffered as a servant of the gospel. His sufferings served the gospel because they filled up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. You remember that we discussed that and we learned that that there is a mystical unity between Christ and the church so that what we suffer, he suffers. And that the church, in essence also continues Christ's earthly sufferings that stands in his place as he is now gone. So the sufferings of the church continue the earthly sufferings of Christ. And that in a sense there is a quota of suffering that is to be fulfilled by the church. And so uh, it can rightly be said that the sufferings of Christians are filling up the lack of Christ's afflictions. Now Paul Uh, says also that these sufferings that were filling up the lack in Christ's afflictions, he underwent in behalf of the church. And we talked about what that meant, that his sufferings, of course, were uh, necessary if he was to preach the gospel, because it was promised that with the preaching of the gospel, because the world was wicked and would not receive the gospel, there would come suffering, so that if he was to preach, he was to suffer. And that, therefore, in, in bringing this gospel to these Colossians, or to the Gentiles in general, when Paul underwent these sufferings, it was, in a sense, in their behalf, because it was necessary in order for him to communicate to them the gospel. But more than that, his sufferings also manifested the power of God. Recall that verse from Corinthians that uh, when God's power, when God uses the earthen vessels, they called themselves uh, men of weakness, uh, the flesh, uh, men who are not great in the world's eyes, who are poor and despised. When God uses such men, it manifests that the power is not from them, but the power is from God. It also said that in their dying, they showed forth the life of Jesus. They showed that Jesus was alive even today, that he had been raised and his power continued because he showed his power through their death. That as they died daily, so the life of Jesus was manifested daily by the manifestation of his power. And finally, that the greater thanksgiving on account of their sufferings would bring greater glory to God. Also, we learned that his sufferings enabled him to extend comfort to the people of God. That as he suffered, he received the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, was able to comfort the people of God when they, in turn, suffered those same sufferings. And finally, that his sufferings, by, in essence, diminishing the quota of what was to be 
uh, undergone by the people of God were in their behalf, in their place. Just as it was the case with every faithful pastor we saw, they would be the ones who would suffer principally so that their flock might escape and that that is what a faithful shepherd does. So Paul has pretty well fully explained, we've pretty well fully considered, the first element of his service to the gospel, which was that he suffered for the sake of the church. And now he turns in this uh, verse 25, latter part of 24 and verse 25, to the second element of his service to the gospel, which is his stewardship. We've had his suffering, and now we have his stewardship. So let me read the text again. I'll read all the way from 24 through 27. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh in behalf of his body, which is the church. So that much we've considered. He continues, of which I became a servant according to God's stewardship, which was given to me for you to accomplish the word of God. The mystery, which was hidden from the ages and from the generations, but now is revealed to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that's a very strange sentence. Uh, When we look at it, it's because there's a lot of clauses. In some cases in the English, the connections aren't very clear. So, uh, the first thing I want to do is spend a few minutes just kind of putting this in outline form so we can understand what it is that Paul is saying. How, is, how can we group his thought here to, uh, to make sense? Well, the basic thing that Paul is saying in these verses is that he has been given a stewardship. That Paul has been given a stewardship. And then he, he explains certain facts about this stewardship. First of all, he explains for whose sake he was given this stewardship. And that is, uh, for the sake of the church. He explains why he was given this stewardship. And the reason why he was given this stewardship was, he says, to accomplish or to fulfill the word of God. That's the second thing he explains. And then the third thing he explains is the thing that he was given to steward, what his stewardship was of. And his stewardship was of a mystery. A mystery in the Gentiles, he calls it. Uh, And then he explains something about this mystery. He He talks about the history of the mystery. That it at one time was concealed, and now it was being revealed. Because God willed to make it known now. So he explains that, he tells us about uh, where this mystery came from. People didn't know about it before, but now it was being revealed because God had decided that now was the time to reveal it. And then he explains the identity of this mystery, which is the thing of which he is a steward. Which is Christ in you, specifically in the Gentiles, being the hope of of glory. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at each one of those parts as we continue, as we take this section. But that gives you some idea of where we're going. We're going to explain what a stewardship is. We're going to see why or for whose sake Paul had this stewardship, why he was given this stewardship, and what this stewardship was all about. 
So a lot of things. We'll just talk about the first couple of things this week. Now, what's a stewardship? What does that even mean? That's not a word we use very much. Uh, we do use it, but uh, we don't talk about stewards very often. We, we talk sometimes about stewardship. Uh, the scriptures tell us something about stewardship, and uh, actually the word itself. The word itself is the word, uh, well, it's two words, depending on whether you mean a stewardship or a steward. A uh, oikonomia or an oikonomos. And it literally means household law. An oikos is a household, and namos is law, just like we say an antinomian is a person who is against the law. N- namas, nomianism being law. So, so an oikonomia, an oikonomos, is household law. Now, a steward then, the oikonomos, is the person who enforces the household law or who administers the household law, uh, literally speaking. In, in its basic usage, a steward is a person who manages a household. Now, let me talk about two words that are used in the scriptures uh, to distinguish. The scriptures, in Greek, you have a word for a house and the worst word for a household. When you talk about a house, you often, they often mean just the family. Um, salvation this day has come to this house. Uh, they mean just the the immediate personal family, the uh, or the uh, the dwelling in which the family lives. In the Israelitish and in the ancient society, you often had the household. The household would have included the extended family, in a sense, which would have included all of your servants. Uh, it would have included slaves, it would have included animals, it would have included all of the possessions. It would have included uh, not merely the dwelling in which the family lived, but their larger property. Uh, it would have included if there was a family business uh, that was taken, conducted primarily in the, on this property, it would have included the family business. So uh, we, don't, we don't live in a society in the city that has that kind of, of arrangement. Uh, because we don't generally work out of our homes, we don't have large properties in the city and things like that. But you have to imagine a setting in an agricultural community, perhaps, where you might have had uh, a, a large estate. Uh, or even if you're rich enough, you might have that even here. Like if you lived in, uh, in uh, uh, where the Ruth Ray Hunt lives or something like that, uh, where you have a giant estate with gardeners and you know people to manage your animals and you've got all this kind of stuff. You have a huge household and all kinds of responsibilities, and all kinds of things to manage, and all kinds of things to administer. The steward was the person who was responsible for the management of that household, um, for the extended household, the servants, the business uh, uh, that was conducted there. For example, we can see this in uh, the chapter we read this morning in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 12. Because uh, there in verses 41 through 48, Jesus talks about a steward. He says, Who is the faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? The steward was a person who was the ruler 
over the household in the place of the master. And his responsibility here is to give them their portion of meat in due season. He says, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, finds so doing. So the steward isn't the master of the house. It's not daddy. It's not the owner. This is a person who works. He's a servant too. But he's like the chief servant. He's the top servant. He's the one, he's, he's the, one the right-hand man of the owner of the household who, who is responsible to be the ruler of the household in the place of the master. Uh, to, to give them their portion of meat in due season. We'll talk about that. He says, Of a truth I say unto you that if he comes and finds him doing this, he'll make him ruler over everything that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My Lord delays his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and eat and drink and be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he doesn't look for him in an hour when he's not expecting and he'll cut him in, in half and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. So you see... Uh, here we, are, we see this idea of what the steward is doing. He's the ruler of the household uh, who administers the affairs of the master when the master is absent. He also talks about this in Luke chapter 16. This is the, uh, uh, the shrewd steward. There was a certain rich man that had a steward, and he accused unto him that he wasted his goods. And he called him and said, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of your stewardship, for you may no longer be steward. The steward said within himself, What shall I do? My Lord takes away from me my stewardship. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I'm resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of my stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors and said, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. He said to another, How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. Take, said to him, Take your bill and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Uh, so what the steward did was he took all of his master's debtors and he called them up real quick and said, look, I'll cut your debt by half or by a third if you'll pay up right now, and they did it. And uh, he did that so that when he was put out of his stewardship, uh, those people would extend kindness towards him. That's how, what he, that's how he was, he says, I resolve what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. This is how he was covering his tail, so to speak. Uh, he, he said, oh, I'm in trouble now, I'm about to be out of a job, so I'll call up all these guys and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, negotiate their debt with them. That way they'll, they'll like me and they'll help me out when my master puts me out. So he, but again, he's a person who, in this case, was obviously responsible for the debts that were owed to his master. He was like a business manager. So, uh, so and that's exactly what a steward was. He's a kind of business manager. He handled the financial affairs of the extended household. He exercised the authority of the master when the master was absent. In fact, in Galatians 4.2... We find that in some cases, at least, this authority even extended to managing the children of the master. Galatians 4.2, he says, or in 4, one and 2, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, even though he's going to be lord of everything. But he is under tutors and governors, stewards, until the time appointed of the father. So the steward, in some cases, might even be responsible for taking care of the children of the master. And, and he's explaining that, that, that a child is no different from a servant, that he would be under the authority of the steward, even though that child was the heir. And someday he would be over the steward. 
Because when the father died, he would become the Lord, and he would be the ruler over the entire estate, and he would be over the steward. But when he's a child, he's under the steward, and the steward is responsible for him. So the steward was the business manager, but he was himself a servant. And that's going to be a very important fact to understand. A steward is not the master of the house. A steward is not the owner of the household. It doesn't belong to him. The steward's job, his entire job, was to administer and to manage the resources that the master owned for the profit of the master's estate. His job was to manage the resources that the master owned for the profit of the master's estate. Just like it said there in Luke 12, uh, in 42 or 43 there, that the steward, the faithful and wise steward, was ruler over the household to give them, the household, their portion of meat in due season. He was administering the resources of the master for the profit of the master's household. Now, stewards, interestingly, were not only found in households, they're also found in cities. Uh, do you remember in Romans 16.23, Paul talks about Erastus, the chamberlain of the city? Uh, it's, it's a steward. It translates a chamberlain. It's, it's the same word. It's the steward of the city. Um, we have, actually, they have one of these in Dallas. They call him the city manager. It's a form of government that exists even today, where you have a city manager who is not the is not an elected official. He's not a a person who uh, who necessarily sets policy or makes laws or anything like that. His entire you have the people who run the city, and those are the elected officials, or in this case would have been whoever was the the, the head of Rome, and they pick someone. And they say, look, we don't want to be trouble. It's too complicated. We're supposed to be making policy. We're supposed to be doing all this stuff. We don't need to be running, paying bills and keeping up with debts and all this. So we're hiring you to do that. So Erastus was the chamberlain of the city, the steward of the city. It was a Christian. And his job was to be a kind of city manager. He was entrusted with the day-to-day -day administration of the affairs of the city. Now, that's what a steward is. From this office, we derive the concept of a stewardship. A stewardship is something for which a person is given responsibility either to use or to administer or to manage. It does not belong to them. That's the key point about what a stewardship is. If you have something that is absolutely 100% yours and you are accountable to no one else, in how you use it, you do not have a stewardship. That just belongs to you, okay? A stewardship is something which belongs to someone else, but you are given the responsibility to use it or to administer it or to manage it in a way that will achieve the purposes of or profit the person who it belongs to. For example, let's say that uh, you had a neighbor, and your neighbor said, "Look, I'm moving away. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm, but I want to keep my house here. But I want to rent my house out, and I want my house taken care of, and I want to make some money off of it. But I don't want to handle all the affairs with renting it out. So I would like you to be responsible for my house." I want you to help, help me make some money with this house, and I'll pay you for it if you do a good job. 
And so you then, this person moves away, they give you the key to the house, you get to take care of the for sale sign, you get to, to put the, or put for the for rent sign, you get to uh, handle the people who move in and out. And if you, so, so it's not yours, it doesn't belong to you. You can't just go in there and trash it. You can say, well, I think I'll move in here and, you know, tear the sinks out of the walls and maybe I'll take the furniture and all that kind of thing. Because it's not yours. It's something that you are given a responsibility to manage for someone else in a way that will be to their advantage and to their profit. Now, this is interestingly not just in the physical realm or the political realm or the financial realm. It's in the spiritual realm. We'll start with 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Turn there. Peter says, actually we'll go back a little bit, verse 8. Above all things have fervent love amongst yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Have hospitality toward one another without grudging. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, as every man has received a gift, or the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. All Christians are stewards of spiritual uh, gifts. As every man has received the gift, so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, God has many gifts. His grace is manifold, it says. That means many, uh, of lots of different kinds of things. And then he says, some, some have speak the oracles of God, some, uh, some minister, uh, whatever you're doing, do it in a way that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. All Christians are stewards. Every Christian has received a gift. And as every Christian has received a gift, they are responsible to use the gift for what? For the benefit of the entire church. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The gifts of God are not given for personal advancement. The gifts of God are not given for personal benefit or pleasure. They are trusts of the Lord to be administered to his household that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the advantage, the profit that God will receive when his gifts are stewarded in the proper way. All Christians are stewards of the manifold grace of God. Officers of the church are especially stewards as well, according to the scriptures. First Peter there is is general, but uh, we get a specific statement in... uh, Titus and also in 1 Corinthians. In Titus 1.7, the qualifications for office. Uh, it says, uh, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, this is chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. As the steward of God, God's steward, a steward under God, over the household. He is uh, 
a manager of God's house, and so he has to be able... If, he, if, if it's the same thing as in Timothy, uh, it's the same idea. If the stu- if a steward is a person who manages the house, and the officers of the church manage God's house, how can you put a man to manage God's house who's shown that he can't manage his own house? That's why he's called a steward, right? Okay. Same now. So so in this sense, he's a steward in the administrative sense. He's a manager of the house and so he has to demonstrate more than that it's not just can he manage his own house administratively but he has to ma- he has to demonstrate certain character traits to show that he's trustworthy to have authority for example if you had some guy who'd been convicted of uh, armed robbery and burglary and embezzlement and extortion you would not hire him to monitor your house while you went on a long trip would you You wouldn't give him your bank account, your checkbook, and say, when the bills come in, I want you to pay them. You wouldn't give him your credit card and say, I need these things ordered, take care of that for me, would you? No, you wouldn't do that. Because he doesn't demonstrate the character traits that evidence that he's trustworthy with that kind of administrative authority, right? Okay, there's also 1 Corinthians 4.1. This also talks about uh, officers of the church. Paul says, let, let men account of us, let men think of us, or account of us the same way, the same as ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is something we're going to get to in a, in a later sermon, this, uh, about how much of the stewardship is the stewardship of the mysteries of God and what these mysteries are. So the stewardship uh, that the ch- officers of the church are entrusted with is not merely an administrative stewardship, where they're given certain authority and certain responsibility to exercise certain functions, they're also entrusted with a stewardship of the truth, the mysteries of God. I don't want to go into that now. We'll look at this extensively later, uh, but uh, just take my word for it now, that there's a stewardship of doctrine, just as there is a stewardship of 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 uh, of resources and administrative affairs. So all Christians are stewards of the manifold grace of God and His giftings. All officers of the church are stewards, both in the administrative sense and also of the of the grace of God expressed in the truth. And Paul himself describes himself as a steward, not only here in chapter four of First Corinthians, also in chapter nine. <clears throat> Verse 17, and this explains perhaps one of the most difficult verses in 1 Corinthians. Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. A necessity is laid upon me. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. A stewardship of the gospel is committed unto me. Now, people come to this verse and they say, how can Paul say he's preaching the gospel against his will? This doesn't make any sense at all. What's This is weird, right? What is my reward then, verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel? What Paul is saying in this verse is that he has a stewardship of the gospel. And... A stewardship is not a volunteer position, okay? It's not something where you say, well, you know, I think I'm going to, I think I'll take responsibility for that. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll manage your checkbook. I'll, uh, I'll, you know, I'll do that for, no, it's not like that. 
A stewardship is something a person is entrusted with. They have to meet certain qualifications. And then when the stewardship is laid upon them, they have obligations that they have to fulfill. Or what happens? If they don't fulfill the obligations, then they're in trouble. That's why he can say, it's against my will. It's, it's, it's not uh, volunteer. It's not willingly. In fact, it certainly wasn't willing for him, was it? I mean, he was going up there persecuting the Christians, and God smote him and said, this is what you're going to do, Paul, now, from now on. I'm changing your name, first of all. And the second thing you're going to do is you're going to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the third thing you're going to do is you're going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the fourth thing you're going to do is you're going to suffer on account of it. That was not willingly. Paul didn't volunteer. He didn't say, Jesus, I want to be an apostle, did he? It was against his will. And this, and this administration, this stewardship was laid on him, and he had obligations. Because what is required of a steward? 1 Corinthians 4.2 It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It is required... In stewards. What happens if the steward is not found faithful? It says when the Lord returns, he will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. He will cut him asunder. So Paul had a necessity laid upon him to preach the gospel because his stewardship was a stewardship of the gospel. He had no choice. Also Ephesians 3, 2, which is the parallel to our... Uh, chapter that we're looking at in, in uh, Colossians. In Ephesians 3, he says, if you've heard of the stewardship or the dispensation, the stewardship of the grace of God, which is given to me toward you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. So Paul's a steward. Every church officer is a steward. All Christians are stewards. Now, we've, uh, going on to the second question, after what is a stewardship, which I just touched on, what is required of a steward? It's required that he be found faithful, it said in 1 Corinthians 4.2. What does that mean, to be found faithful? Well, once we understand what a stewardship is, it makes sense. A faithful steward is the one who honestly and wisely administers the resources with which he's been entrusted. That's the first part of it. If he's been entrusted with a resource, he has to honestly and wisely administer it. He also has to fulfill his obligation. If the master has given him commandments, he must fulfill those commandments. If the master has told him, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to see that that is done, I want you to take care of this over here, he has to do that. The master says, here is my bounty, here is my storehouse, here is my resources, here is my checkbook. You keep the household running, you make every everybody receives what they need, make sure my family's taken care of, make sure my slaves, my servants are taken care of, make sure everything works properly here. What's the opposite of that? Well, if you, if you take your master's substance and you squander it or you waste it, you don't wisely administer it, the master's teenage son comes and says, hey, give me a late model uh, sports car. And you say, oh, sure, here it goes. You know, chum, chum, chum. Now, that's not, that's not being a good steward. Uh, the master comes back, he cuts you asunder. Stealing. Stealing from the master. Because remember, you've been entrusted with everything. You're stealing for your own personal gain. Abusing the power. That's what we saw in, uh, in Luke, wasn't it? That when the master disappeared, he, he, he first he got drunk. Okay, so that's, I mean, that was real smart, right? So now he's, he's, he, he, he takes the master's substance, the master's wine, and he gets drunk on it. 
And then he starts to beat the servants, the men's servants and the maid servants. He's abusing the authority that was given to him. That's not fulfilling your stewardship. You have to fulfill your obligations and you have to be found faithful. You have to wisely and honestly, honestly administer the resources of the master. We're going to come back to this in a second. The next thing Paul tells us, or actually the first thing he tells us about his stewardship, is he tells us for whose sake it was. Why or, or, or what was he exercising this stewardship towards? He says it was designed to benefit the church of Jesus Christ. The arrangement in the text is interesting. If we go back to verse uh, 23, he says he's talking about the gospel which is preached to every creature under heaven, of which I became a servant. Now he says, I suffer for uh, the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, of which I became a servant. Same thing. Same exact words, of which I became a servant. First it was the gospel. Now it's the church. Uh, strictly speaking... Paul's second element of service to the gospel is not exactly his stewardship, it's his service to the church in fulfilling his stewardship toward them. So his first, his first aspect of being a servant of the gospel was suffering on account of the church. The second aspect of his service to the gospel uh, is being a servant to the church and fulfilling his stewardship towards them. Now, this makes sense. Uh, you can have a stewardship of the gospel, but it's not a stewardship for the benefit of the gospel, particularly. That doesn't make any sense. Remember our earlier definition. It's a household. Who's the master of this household? Jesus Christ. Who is the house? Paul says the church is the household of Christ, the body of Christ. Who is Paul? He is set in the household as a servant who is an officer in the household. He's a servant of the master, but he's given a responsibility to administer some resource of the master. For what? For the benefit of the household. That's what the steward does. For the benefit of the master and for the benefit of the household. The greater glory of Jesus Christ and the edification of the church. This is a theme that we see throughout Paul's writings. It's just not always put in this language. He doesn't always use the stewardship language. Sometimes he uses the language of ministry, of servant. And it's many different places. But once we grasp this concept that there's a household, that Paul is a servant in the household, that Paul is a steward as a servant in the household, entrusted with certain official business of the master, entrusted with a certain authority, entrusted with certain responsibilities, entrusted with certain resources to administer. So serving the gospel for Paul is serving the church with the gifts and resources of Jesus Christ. And that's why... It was not wise for the false teachers in Corinth or the, those challenging his authority in Corinth to, uh, to attack him because you're attacking the representative of the master, if you will. Um, that's very strange. Is, is there a creature in the ductwork? How odd. Okay. It's... Coming to listen to the sermon. That's all right. Um, what I want to do at this point is just a couple of things, and that is, I think it'd be good to make a couple of applications. Uh, I think that there are some fairly significant things that are revealed to us when we compare 
the revelation of the gospel ministry to the practice of the contemporary ministry. The gospel ministry is not a career path. It's not something uh, that people say, well, you know, I think that'd be a good job. I think it's a good, stable job. I think I'll, uh, I think I'll, you know, it's a nice, it's a reasonable income. You don't get rich, but, you know, you're not poor. I think I'll go into that. I'll be a minister. Or I'll No. No, it's not a career path. It is a stewardship to be fulfilled. I wonder how many of our contemporary ministers of the gospel who use the title minister as a title of lordly authority rather than as its true meaning of a servant. I wonder how many really account of their ministry as a stewardship. Because it's not their own, is it? It doesn't belong to them. It's not their resources that they're administering. It's the master's resources that are to be administered to the flock. How many of these so-called ministers are more concerned with ministering the resources of the flock to themselves? What is required of a steward that he be found faithful? How should a steward administer his stewardship? To what end? How do these things compare with the modern ministry? The abuse of power. The beating of the servants. That's, that's, that's not the faithful and wise steward, is it? That's not the, uh, that's not the way the faithful and wise steward administers his master's resources. That's the wicked servant who abuses his power for personal gain and advantage, whether it's ego, whether it's riches, whether it's aggrandizement, who abuses his power and abuses the household of the master. What's going to happen to him when the master returns? He's going to be appointed his place with the unbelievers. That's what's going to happen. How many squander or waste the master's resources? I don't even want to get started on this. Building roller rinks, bowling alleys, great edifices, fine statues of themselves. That's not what the master's resources are for. How many use the resources of doctrine to promote themselves? How many, frankly, steal directly out of the church's coffers for their own personal gain? The squander, the waste, the stealing, the abuse of power, the laziness. Because, you know, sometimes you can just be a lazy steward. You're given a responsibility. You're given a resource to administer. And you're lazy. When the master returns, he will find these wicked servants so doing and will cut them asunder and appoint them their place with the unbelievers. But every, if every Christian is a steward, then we have to ask ourselves the same questions. If every Christian has gifts to benefit the church, and I know there's this whole modern thing, let's go and have a seminar and find our spiritual gift out of the list in Romans or whatever. I'm not talking about that. Um... But you cannot deny the fact that if the church is the body of Christ, it is very explicitly taught that, that every part of the body is necessary. Every part of the body does something for the whole body. Some are the contemptible parts and some are the honorable parts, as he says, but every part is necessary. 
there's imagery over and over again, whether it's in 1 Peter, whether it's in Corinthians, that says that the entire body is to, every part of the body is to minister to the whole body. Every Christian is to exercise the gifts which God has given him in a responsible way for the benefit of the whole body. And that means that every Christian is therefore responsible to God for the view, for the use of those gifts. You see, there are some false views of how this works roaming around. There's the false view of the church in which the people are passive consumers of instruction. And it stops there. Either passive consumers of instruction or passive consumers of sacraments as in the Roman Catholic Church, where the gifts of God are, the, are, are supposedly the treasury of the church administered through the officers of the church to the people, and the people are these passive consumers of grace through the sacraments. Or in the evangelical churches, the people are passive consumers of spiritual instruction delivered to them by the preachers of the gospel, and that's where it ends. That's wrong. Views in which the stewardship that belong to Christian people is financial only. That God has given them certain resources with which they are to bless the minister uh, or the edifice of the church. That's wrong. Views in which the church is virtually equated with the ministry or with the officers of the church. In which, and that happens when you limit the concept of gifting of the, in the church to officers only. The gifts are not offices. They are resources of Christ to be administered responsibly to the body of Christ. In some cases that will be through an authoritative position because it's necessary for the, for the successful administration of the gift. Obviously, if you are gifted with governments or something of that affair uh, uh, and with the instruction and with some of these things with, with the doctrines we see that they can only be properly administered for the safety of the, of the body through, uh, through men who are accountable in a, in a different sort of a way not merely through uh, the, the average member if you will but, rather, but we have to understand that the gifts themselves are not offices and the gifts are not confined to officers that is totally hostile to the view of the body all ministering together uh, to, to, to the whole body to build up the church of Christ everyone we know is not an officer but everyone we know in the church of Jesus Christ is gifted and has a responsibility a responsibility to, uh, to exercise their stewardship for the benefit of the church. Now, I'm not going to ask you, you know, do you know what your spiritual gift is? Because the Bible doesn't ask you that kind of question. I'm going to ask you this. If you call yourself a Christian and you profess to be a recipient of salvation, are you living your life in such a way as to be serving the people of God in some meaningful way? Is there a focus in your life on what you could, can, or should do to serve the people of God as the people of God? Because if there is not, then there is some sort of problem. Because Peter says that the manifold grace of God is to be, we are to minister to one another. And if we're not ministering to one another in some way, even if it is just the using of hospitality one to another without grudging, having a fervent love among yourselves, as every man has received, the, it may be speaking the oracles of God, it may be serving, it may be giving, 
It may be using hospitality. It may be having fervent love. Because the whole way in which the gifts are presented, I'm not convinced, is meant to be a totally exhaustive, some kind of categorization. As every man has received, even so minister the same one to another. You didn't receive to sit on it. You didn't receive to use it for your private benefit. You received to minister the same to one another, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We need to seriously consider how it is that we are serving the people of God. Uh, Because that description of the way in which the church operates in the scriptures is so totally different from the modern idea of the consumer church. That's what we have today. We have the consumer church. We have certain people who we have elected or chosen or who promoted themselves to uh, do things. And then we have the whole mass of people who go there and pay admission, if you will, and consume. That's all it is. That is all it is. They pay admission, and then they get something. That's not a functioning church of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's kind of crude, and and I know that even in some churches, I mean, there are things going on in the woodwork that are a little bit broader than that, but I'm afraid there's a whole lot of people who attend church in that way. That's that's basically what they do. It's like it's they're consumers. You know, this is America. We have capitalism. In fact, if you don't like this church, well, you can go to another church and be the. It's just like a restaurant. You know, you go in, you pay your money, you get the food. Oh, I didn't like the taste of that. I'm going to go over to this restaurant. We're not going back there anymore. That was that was uh, tough meat. You see, that's all it is. And so people go to the church restaurant where the food is finely prepared and uh, smooth and goes down easy. Well, that's that's not that has utterly nothing to do with the nature of a functioning biblical church, which is a body in which every part works together to nourish the whole, in which every part has a responsibility, has a stewardship. And then there is that administrative stewardship that is given to the officers of the church, uh, which is also very, very important, but is not the entire thing. Where we're going to pick up with next time is we're going to continue with Paul's explanation of his stewardship by considering the purpose of his stewardship and what it, the nature of his stewardship, what it was in this place, that he's specifically referring to, because we'll see that Paul, as we already saw, Paul speaks in many senses of having a stewardship, but there's a specific one that he has in mind here that was really peculiar to him. So we shall uh, we shall pick up there, Lord willing, uh, next time.